0: All right, well, as I said, my name is Jack, and I am uh, the new worship arts pastor here at Alderwood, and I'm really excited to be here with you. Um, I need need someone, I need a volunteer to help me on the front end. You will? All right, come on up here. So because you've done this, I'm just going to give this to you on the front end, a $5 Starbucks gift card, easiest $5 Starbucks gift card you're ever going to get. What's your name? Noel. Noel, great to meet you. I'm Jack, good to meet you. Right here, Noel, I have two glasses, all right? And just based off of appearances, all right, first off, let me turn this cup to you. I want you to see this cup here. It's kind of got chips on the side of it. It's got some markings on the side. I don't know if you can see that over there. And it also has a massive crack right here with some tape on it. And then you have this. This is actually my mother-in-law's uh, most prized chalice. This is very nice. These, these are the ones that come out Thanksgiving and Christmas. Got some ice in it, and the water looks great in it. So I want you to choose which one you're going to take a drink out of, just based off of appearances. Which one looks better? That one looks better, okay? So go ahead and grab that, but don't take a drink just yet. So I want you to know that this water just came from a water fountain, and actually I probably got it probably two or three hours ago, so it's not super cold. That one has ice in it, so you can see it's pretty cold right now. If you'll touch this one here to see. Is that one colder? That's right. Now the only thing you probably should know, in fact the state of Washington requires that I tell you this, is that this water came from a toilet. Does that change which one you think is probably the better glass to drink? Why? You don't drink water out of a toilet. But why? I mean it looks great. Like oh, wait a second here. Wait. Can anybody see a difference between these two in terms of the water? This one actually looks better. This one looks great, but you won't drink it because it came out of a toilet. It's what's in the water, which you can't see? Oh, it's like bacteria and all that stuff. So I need like a micro. What are those things called? A microscope. Thank you. Yeah. So I need a mic. See, I slept in science class. Don't be like me. Okay. You need a microscope to be able to see what's going on. Thank you so. You help. Thank you, Noel. Let everyone give Noel a hand for. Her. I was not going to let you drink it. I was, I'm actually glad probably it was a girl who was going to do it because I could see one of the guys say, I'll still drink it. I know I would have when I was in middle school. Here's the thing. So this water glass looks awesome. It's a great glass. It's cold. The water looks refreshing. But once I add that one detail that it came from a toilet, you better believe if you're somewhat sane, there's no way you're going to drink that water because it's probably contaminated. And why do I use that analogy? Because today in our Instagram, Snapchat, YouTube, Facebook world, man, it's so easy for me and for us to want to post our religiousness and our faith in Christ for everyone to see, oh my gosh, I just love this Elevation Worship song. It's my favorite. Oh my gosh, this is my favorite verse. Every time I read my Bible, I want to take a picture of it so my friends can see it, so my friends know, or post a quote that I love. And really, what we're doing is we're trying to project that we're super religious, and it's possible for us to do this in our life. And at the end of history, when we stand before Jesus, have him say that that worship was not what I wanted. You see, if you read the Gospels, you're gonna see Jesus interacting with the religious leaders. And the religious leaders are constantly showing off their faith to everybody. When they fast, they make sure to tear their clothes and mark up their face, and they just look awful. And you can see, oh man, those guys are really holy for what they're doing. And when they give lots of money, they make sure people know, hey, just so you know, I'm writing a really big check for the Lord because this is how much I love God. But Jesus constantly points to the tax collector, to the man who is broken before God and saying, Lord, forgive me that I'm a sinner. He has nothing on his end that he can bring. He's pointing out the poor woman who only has two coins to her name and she's dropping that in the bucket, even though the guy right next to her is writing a massive check that could probably pay off the entire temple. And Jesus is saying that that woman's worship is what I want. And so today we're going to talk about what does it mean to live a life of worship? Because worship is something that gets thrown out so often. In fact, my title is the worship pastor. I'll be honest, it kind of irritates me that I'm called the worship pastor because my job is like 99 percent music. And really, when it comes down to worship, music only makes up like 1% of what a life of worship is. And so today we're going to look in what Matthew has to tell us about what it means to live a life of worship. So if you have a Bible. Or we'll have it on the screen here as well. Let's go to Matthew 22, verse 35 through 40. You should know this about Matthew, because we can go and just read these accounts and not really think much about it. Matthew's name was Levi before, and he was a tax collector, and he betrayed his people, he betrayed his family, and he did a lot of terrible things in his life. But then he met Jesus, and Jesus said, follow me. And Matthew followed Jesus in his three years of ministry. And he saw Jesus die. He saw Jesus rise again and ascend into heaven. And Matthew was so transformed that he wrote this book as a letter to his own people, the people that he once had betrayed, to say that Jesus is the Messiah. And my life change is the proof that he is the Messiah. You once saw me as someone who was so terrible and Jesus has absolutely transformed me from the inside out. I'm no longer called Levi, his old name. My name is Matthew. And in this story, that we have here in Matthew 22. Matthew records an interaction that Jesus has with a religious leader. And it talks about what the most important thing in the Old Testament, and really for us as Christians, what's the most important thing for us? What does it mean to live a life of worship? Let's read this together. Matthew 22, 35 through 40. It says, one of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. I want you to see right here on the outset. It says one of them, that's one of the religious leaders, an expert in the law. So, by show of hands, how many of you have tried to read the Bible in a year? Has anyone here tried? Oh, guys, you got got try maybe one day. Right? So, ha- how many of you have struggled maybe in trying to read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers? Like, those are definitely not the most appealing books in the Bible. Yeah, those. Are, I mean, it's okay. You could say that. Like, God's not going to strike you down with lightning. And here's the thing: is that this guy is an expert in those first five books of the Bible. It's called the Torah. And this guy is an expert in it. He's studied it. He's a scholar. He's what I call a nerd because he's picking the most difficult books in the Old Testament to be an expert in. And he comes to Jesus. And he says to him, uh, he has a question for him. He says that he wants to test Jesus. And this word test is actually very, uh, a very light way of putting it. Because you can test someone. You can ask people questions if you're curious about what their position is on something. But this word test literally means try to trap. In fact, the other times that it's used, it's speaking of Satan, when Satan is trying to trap us into sin, or he's trying to trap us into guilt, and trying to trap us into making mistakes in our life. And so here's a guy who has studied God's word for a living. He's a scholar. He's really smart. And yet, is he following the example of God? No. He's following the example of Satan, and right on the outset, he's trying to trap the son of God. And he tests him with this question. He says, teacher you could kind of hear a sarcastic tone in that. Teacher, you know, I'm, I'm just as smart as you when it comes to the law, or at least he thinks he is. Teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus gives us a great answer to this. And this is actually going to help us understand what it means to live a life of worship. Because it's not enough for us to just be singing songs. We want to live a life that demonstrates and shows that Jesus is truly the Lord of our life. Well, you know, what's interesting is Jesus's answer, it's a lot like this water because Jesus starts off at a foundational level that we cannot see with the human eye. You would think, or you could think that Jesus would say, make sure you go to the temple, make sure you give, make sure you do a bunch of religious things. That's what God wants. After all, he wants our obedience, right? No, he starts off at a very internal level that no one can see except for us and for God. Let's see what Jesus says. Jesus said first, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Jesus responds to his question with one word, agape. Love the Lord your God. See, agape is the deepest form of love that we can possibly have. It goes deeper than just uh, for a movie or for a meal or for music. Those types of things that we really enjoy in this life, but we can go without. Think about the most important human relationship. I think of my wife, okay? So I love Cafe Rio. We had Cafe Rio at a rehearsal dinner. It's a great Mexican place. There's not many of them up here in the Northwest, but there's one that I'm okay with, coming from Southern California, and Cafe Rio is it. And so... I like Cafe Rio a lot, but if I had to choose between Cafe Rio and my wife, Allison, it's not even a conversation. I'm going to pick her because my love for Allison is foundational to who I am as a husband, as I'm a soon-to-be father here. And so in the same way, God is saying, Jesus is saying, you need to have a foundational love to to who God is, to know God, and to care about who he is. So he says, love the Lord your God. And then we hear this a lot. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. But, like, what does that mean? How do I love God with all my heart? How do I love God with my soul? That kind of, like, for me, for a long time, that sounded redundant. My heart and my soul, aren't those the same things? And I'm gonna help us unpack it, because if we unpack this, it's gonna help us in living a true life of worship to God. Jesus first says we must love God with all of our heart. And what does that mean? It means to give God our affection, to give God our affection. You see, it's easy for me to want to just say, oh, I care about God, but then I actually don't live my life like I actually do. It's moving, what what it is, let me say this again, to love God is with our hearts to give him our affection, is to deeply care about him. And in essence, I mean, this sounds a little strange, especially for me as a guy, but it's really important. It's to be in love with God. I look at David in the Old Testament. Okay, David, a guy who conquered giants and killed bears and killed lions and, and, you know, raided nations and did amazing things, killed a lot of people in his life. And yet, in the book of Psalms, one of the things that he constantly is saying is how much he loves God. And so I want to say this to the guys in this room. If you're thinking, that sounds a little effeminate, man. Really? I gotta love God? Like, do you, you think just sound kind of like the, the little heart emojis? It's a really deep, passionate caring for who god is in fact proverbs tells us that our heart our love for god is the wellspring of life and therefore to love god with my heart is to overflow have my heart overflowing with love and joy towards god so my question for you is do you genuinely love god like it sounds like a foundational question but this is what marks a true christian from a non-christian In fact, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation, he says to this church that you're very smart, you've cast out false teachers, you've done amazing things, but one thing I have against you, you've forsaken your first love. If you don't love God, he says he's going to cast out that church. And so for us, it's important that we truly assess, do I truly care about God? It can be easy for us to say, but it's actually hard for us to do. Jesus continues on, and he says that we must love God with all of our heart. That's to give him our affection, and we must love him with all of our soul. And what this means is to give God our devotion, to give God our devotion. It's a call for us to see God as not just some distant figure, but actually place him as the Lord of our life. See, emotional fondness for God is not enough. There has to be action placed behind it. Because warm feelings for God won't help us when temptation is trying to get us to give in into sin. Emotion alone won't help us do the right thing when no, one is, when no one is watching. It's a resolved inner conviction towards God, and it's absolutely vital for us if we're going to pursue a life of worship. See, it's not an either-or between affection and devotion. It's a both and. Because if I just have affection but no devotion, I'm a hypocrite. I'm telling you with my, my, my mouth, I love Lord, I love the Lord, but I'm actually not doing anything with it. But if I'm just doing devotion and I don't actually love God, I have just empty religious activity. I'm a lot like this, this cup. That's actually no good. You need both in order to be acceptable to God. You need to have a heart for him and your hands need to be pushed to the plow to serve him. That's the second thing. And thirdly, We must love God with all of our mind. To love God with our mind is to give him our attention. So here we have seen to give God our affection, our devotion. And then finally he says to love God with our mind is to give him our attention. See, our mind is the storehouse. It's the warehouse of all the things that we think about, all the things that we worry about, all the things that we obsess about. And when we love somebody, we think about them often. When we're devoted to something, we often put our mind to it and work really hard on it. To set our attention onto God is for us to remove the noise and distractions that can easily entangle us. It's to actually focus on what are the things that please God. What is it that God wants me to do? How can I learn more about God? Not just so that I can gain a bunch of information about Him, but actually so that I could be humbled and transformed by Him. It's digging deeper into studying God's Word. Like, do you realize that this book, like, think about this. I think we just think that this is just a history book, and practically, that's how we approach it sometimes, that this is just a really old history book with events in it, but so much more than that, because it's God's heart written to us, that God is telling us explicitly how much he loves us. God is telling us explicitly how much we have done wrong in our life and sin, and yet how far he has come to pursue us. And the most excellent way that he's demonstrated this to us is by sending Jesus to us and so do you study God's word so that your affection to God will grow so your devotion will God to God will grow and will you give him the attention so that he can make that transformation in your life to set our attention on to God just to think about him and to think about the things that would please him So as we've seen so far, to love God with our heart and our soul and mind is to give God our affection, our attention, and our devotion. I love a quote. Uh, There was a guy from a long time ago, an old dude named Augustine. And Augustine, he told us that until we do this, we're never going to be satisfied. Like you could get the dream job one day. You could get the dream car. You could get the dream spouse. You can get the dream house. Whatever it is that you want in your life, you could get it. But I'm telling you what, I've gotten to know many of those people, and they're still empty. If they don't have Christ, those things do not satisfy we were made to be in a relationship with God. We were designed and wired to give God our affection. We were designed to live with the devotion to serve this God. And we were designed to give our absolute attention to Him. So, how do we do this practically? How do you do this? We do it by dying to ourselves every single day. It's by waking up every day, spending intentional, uninterrupted time with God. This is not checking the box. I did my Bible reading. It's truly coming to God and saying, I need you. Recognizing that when I'm reading his word, when I'm in prayer with him, God is revealing his heart to me through his word, and I'm revealing my heart to him through prayer. It's by confessing our sins and allowing him to heal us of our sins, of our self-inflicted wounds. It's by reading our Bible, not to gain trivia knowledge about him, but to learn genuinely about him so that we will be transformed by him. It's doing what we were just doing a few minutes ago. Singing and giving praise to Him, glorifying Him, and thanking Him through our songs for what Jesus has done for us. It's being willing to do radical, insane, crazy things that sometimes seem countercultural, the things that He might be calling us to do to love our enemies, to live with self control, to share the gospel, be on mission. It's not doing these things just randomly, it's not doing them even routinely to just fill uh, the check a box but rather making them into my lifestyle. Like this is foundational to me. I have to spend time with God. I need to grow my relationship with him. I need to be willing to do the hard things that he tells me to do because I don't want to just do it out of obligation. I'm doing it because I love him and I know that he loves me. And so at this point, this, Jesus' answer didn't really surprise the Old Testament scholar. In fact, this is kind of a common thing, you know, that is called the Shabbat, uh, Israel's greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind. Like that was not a big surprise to him that Jesus gave this answer. And so I could see this guy wanting to jump in with his trap question, but Jesus jumps in before he can. I love what Jesus says then. Jesus says the second command is like the greatest command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. As I'm reading this, I have two questions that come to my mind. First off, who's my neighbor? And secondly, what does loving my neighbor have to do with loving God? What does loving my neighbor have to do with loving God? Well, I'm, I'm running short on time here, but I'll just say this. That Jesus tells us in other places in the gospel that our neighbor is anybody that God has placed around us. Anybody. Even the weird people. Even the rejects. The obnoxious people. And yes, even our enemies, the people who have hurt us. And there's two reasons why that we are to love everybody that God has placed around us. The first thing that we need to see is to love people. We, uh, we worship God by loving people because to do this is to appreciate the value that God has placed on them. In Genesis 1, if you go back to the very first chapter in the Bible, when God created Adam and Eve, it says that God created them in his image, Male and female, regardless of race, regardless of gender, God created the people that you see around you. Like, look around this room. If you see in this room, if you see your peers they reflect the goodness and character of God in some way. And granted, it's in a fallen way because none of us are perfect. And this is by no means saying that we are God. What it is saying is that God wanted to have a special relationship with mankind and so he put a part of his image on each one of you. So when I say I'm not gonna love that person or I'm not gonna care about that person or I'm not gonna serve this person or I'm gonna talk badly about this person, you're really not just wronging that person. What you're doing is you're telling God God, yeah, I don't really care about that part of your character that that person reflects. I don't really care about them. And that doesn't please God because God created them in his image and he's calling us to love them. But secondly, to do this is to reflect the love that Jesus gave us onto others. When I choose not to love or forgive my enemies, I'm saying to God that even though he forgave me, of my sins, of my, fail, of my failures, that I have the right to withhold forgiveness and grace towards others who have wronged me. It's to say that I am the exception to Jesus' command to love others just as he loved me. It's to say that Paul's command to forgive others and to show tenderheartedness towards one another does not apply to me. It's to say that God's expectation for how I treat others just doesn't matter to me. So let me ask you, If I take that posture, does that sound like a life of worship to you? No. No. Because we're putting all sorts of exceptions to God and what we're going to do. Does that sound like a heart that has an affection for God or has a devotion to God or even willing to pay attention to when God is telling us, no, you should not be saying that about somebody. You should not do that. No. This is why our affection and attention to Jesus must be displayed to the people God has placed around us. So how do we do this? Practically, how do we do this? The Bible gives us a few examples. It's to befriend the person who is all alone and rejected. And we do this because Jesus was rejected for us so that we can become friends of God. We forgive those who have wronged us is another way we can do it. And we do this because Jesus died on the cross so that we can be forgiven of our sins. We do kind things with no desire for repayment. We don't do it and post it on social media for everyone to see. We don't make a big deal out of it. We just tell somebody if they're short on cash for lunch, we just give them a few bucks and just say, don't worry about it. No intention of repayment. Why? Because Jesus gave all of himself for us. And all we have to do is believe and we'll be saved. It's not by our works. We cannot repay Jesus for what he's done for us. We speak kindly about others. This one really convicted me. Think about this. We speak kindly about others, especially when they're not around. Because Jesus stands before the Father, and he doesn't speak negatively about me when I blow it. He intercedes for me. So I mess up like a thousand times a day. Just ask my wife. And yet, every single time I blow it, Jesus isn't standing there before the Father and just saying, Man, he did it again. This guy is just an idiot. Like, he doesn't get it. No, Jesus doesn't do that. Every time I sin, Jesus says, yes, he made a mistake, but he's mine. My blood covers his sin. And he does that for us. So what right do I have then to talk about other people negatively when they're not around and to gossip about them? I have no right because Jesus doesn't do that for us. None of us have that right. We tell other people also about the gospel and Jesus. We share our faith because Jesus sent somebody to us to tell us about what it means to be a follower of his. You see, it's not enough for us just to love God and then to keep that private and bottled up. It has to be displayed and freely given, not just through religious activity because anybody can do that. It has to be displayed by genuine love for the people that God has placed around us. Yes, even people who believe differently than us. We still must love everyone that God has placed around us. Jesus put no barriers on who your neighbor is. So be sure to show that love to others. It must be displayed and freely given because we are all undeserving of God's love. And yet he still gives it to us every single day. So we too must be willing to love the unlovable, the lonely, and the hurting people in our world. So I want to conclude with this. The Old Testament has 23,415 verses. It's a lot of verses. And Jesus is saying that all of the law, all of the prophets are summed up They hang on these two commands. Like, that's a big deal. Everything that a person is supposed to do for God hangs on these two commands. So I have two questions I want to ask you. First, what motivates you in in the decisions that you make? Our motivations are the fuel that drive us. And unless you make loving God your primary motivation for your life, I'll just tell you this, you'll never find yourself able to truly worship him. If your motivation is to look good before people, If it's, oh, this is going to get a lot of likes on Instagram. I don't even know Snapchat. I don't know what you do with Snapchat. But if you're trying to post things on there to get people to see, like, that's so empty. And at the end of your life, when you stand before God, that's not the worship that God wants from us. He wants a love that genuinely cares for him, the things that he cares about, and cares, secondly, about how it comes across to other people. But secondly, the other question I have for you is, how do you display God's love to others? Not for them just to see, but for them to experience. Because if I'm just posting it on Instagram, I'm not really doing it for your benefit, I'm doing it for mine. But if I come to you and say, hey, God placed this on my heart, I want to be a blessing to you in some way, shape, or form, that's what's going to change people's lives. That's what's going to demonstrate the power of God. Not an Instagram post, but actually going to someone who needs love and giving it to them and doing it in the name of Jesus because Jesus did it for us first. God doesn't want empty action from us. He wants our attention. He wants our affection and our devotion. And he wants us to display it for everyone around. So to live a life of worship, just to say that one more time, is to give God our ultimate attention, affection, and devotion and allow that love to affect our relationships with the people that are around us. That's how you live a life of worship. Is singing on this? No. Now singing is great and we should. But that's an outpouring, once again, of the affection and attention and devotion because we want people to know that God has done amazing things for me and I'm going to sing about it. I'm going to celebrate it because God is amazing and I want you to know because someone did that for me. And that's why we sing. We sing to proclaim the goodness of God. To do this requires that we lay down our life every single day. See, it's easy for me to say. It's easy to say the two, those two commandments. Love the Lord with your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. But if you actually unpack it, that is an incredibly difficult thing for us to do. It requires that we die to ourself every single day. It could sound scary. It could sound radical and intense to do these things. But if you're willing to try it, I think you're gonna see that nothing is more liberating and nothing is more wonderful than living our lives entirely focused on loving God and loving people. I think you'll see that that's the worship that God truly accepts. I think your life will be changed by it. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful that you sent your son to us, that you gave yourself for us, that Lord, even though we're all sinful people, that we don't deserve your love, we don't deserve your grace, still you freely give it to us. God, I'm asking that that love would transform us, that it would change our lives. And that, God, we wouldn't keep it bottled up. But, Lord, we would find ways to display it to everybody that you've placed around us. To our friends, Lord, and to the people that we reject, to the people that we speak negatively about, to the people that we hurt or the people who have hurt us. God, we don't do this just to look righteous, but we do it because you've done amazing things for us. And we've experienced it. Father, I'm asking that that would be our heart in this place, that we would live worship that is truly pleasing to you. To do goodness, to show mercy, and to walk humbly before you, Lord. That is what you require, and that's what you ask of. God, we love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.